And the words to which I would call your attention this morning come to us from verses 27 to 31 of Matthew chapter 9. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Let's give attention to it now. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. And Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We come to you now as sheep, as children who need to be fed. Lord, we ask two things. One, would you increase our appetite for your word? Lord, we desire holiness. We desire piety. Would you give us a zeal for it? Also, give us ears to hear. Lord, let us understand what the Spirit would say to the people of Jesus Christ today. Hide this poor sinner behind the cross and let Christ's glory shine. We pray in His name. Amen. In in 1995, which doesn't seem like it was so long ago, but really was quite some time ago, a young lady performed a song that became very popular, uh, uh, especially, I guess, amongst youth of that day. It was a song called uh, Ironic uh, by a woman by the name of Alanis Morissette. I guess one of the famous parts of that song is that it doesn't actually have any real ironies in it. (laughs) Um, It's not ironic that you get a fly in your soup or that it rains on your wedding day. It just isn't. And so I guess perhaps uh, Lannis Morissette demonstrated what many of us um, of that day uh, lack, which is a real education in literature. Uh, Matthew, Matthew didn't suffer uh, from a lack of education in literature, and we're going to see that he has a real appreciation for actual irony. What is an actual irony? Well, an irony is something that happens when you expect one thing and another thing happens. So, uh, uh, Miss Morissette would have been correct if she'd have said, there's a 100% chance of rain today, and you go outside, and it's, the sun is shining. It's beautiful. It's the opposite of what you expect. Uh, that's an irony. Well, this scene uh, that Matthew portrays for us, it, it has a pretty profound irony for us. As we walk through it, what you're going to see is that there are at various stages in Jesus' interaction with these two blind men, tests of faith. There are tests of faith. And I think what shines through in this passage of Scripture very, very clearly for us is this. That seasons of weakness, seasons where I am sick, seasons where life is not going my way, can be some of the most 
fruitful spiritual seasons of life. They can be some of the times of my life where I grow more in my faith than the times where everything is going my way. And the opposite is true too. That those times in my life where everything is going my way can be the times where my faith flags, it is weak, I am filled with doubts, and my contentment doesn't rest in Christ. Seasons of weakness and infirmity can result in strong faith, while seasons of health and riches can result in weak faith. We're going to see two things from this passage. I think there's a strong contrast that comes out through Matthew's writing. The first thing that we see is strong faith can result from seasons of sickness. Notice this in verses 27 to 29. We see three tests of their faith. Notice, they, as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed Him, crying aloud. Now, remember, as we come back, we spent a few Sundays away from Matthew, so let me remind you where we are. Uh, Jesus had come back across the Sea of Galilee and he'd returned to what had effectively become his headquarters, the, the place of his operation, which was the city of Capernaum. This is where Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, Peter lived. And so Peter's home became Jesus' headquarters. Jesus had uh, rested at Capernaum, he'd gone back out for ministry, and now he's passing on even from there. He's going out into the countryside, as it were. And so as he's walking along, and, and you can see this, all the throngs of people are following along with them. What's happening? Well, two blind men followed him. Now, I don't know if you're sense of humor is maybe as messed up as mine, but I just, I couldn't help but get a little bit of a chuckle out of that scene of two blind men following Jesus. I, I pictured Matthew's mother maybe reading this and saying, I, I could follow you the whole way. I understood the whole thing, but son, two blind men following Jesus? I can't see that. Doesn't make sense to me. And I think that's, that may be sort of the first aspect of, of Matthew trying to bring you into the scene. That doesn't make sense. How do blind men follow after Christ? Well, this is the first test of their faith. Will they follow? Would they follow? And they did. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, would would a couple of you go over there and help these guys along? Bring them to me. He doesn't stop. He keeps walking. He doesn't have sympathy for these men. No pity. He doesn't say, somebody, I'm going to sit down right here. Bring those guys over to me. He keeps walking. This is the first test. In that season of their infirmity, will they keep going? He goes back to the house. He goes inside. Now, they would have been wrestling amongst all of these throngs of people this whole way. first test of the faith. Would they follow him? The second test of the faith. Will they recognize him in this season of their infirmity, this season of their blindness? And notice that they did. They cried out to him. 
have mercy on us, son of David. And we read further uh, down in verse 28, when he entered the house, they came to him and he said, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. So you see, they are, the, Jesus is testing them. Uh, do you know who I am? And they're crying out to him, son of David. Now, one of the things you may recognize about Matthew's gospel is that he began at this point. We began with the genealogy of Jesus. And he wanted you to see in careful detail that we could point to Christ's lineage from David. And from there, he has shown you over and over and over that Jesus came to inaugurate his kingdom. He is a king. Well, here's an irony. Perhaps. Two blind men are the first ones to acknowledge that he is the son of David. Will they recognize who he is? And they did. They cried out to him, O king, O son of the king, have mercy on us. They recognize that this is one who is full of tenderness toward those who ask for it. He is full of affection for the weak, for those who come to him. He will not turn them away. They pass the test of perseverance, they pass the test of recognition. Will they pass the test of belief? Notice, they came into the house, and perhaps Jesus had gone in and he had taken his usual place. Maybe he was sitting in the same place where the paralytic man had been lowered down to him before. And he looked at him and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. In this very same place, the blind men come to him crying out, have mercy on us. And Jesus has one question for them. Do you believe that I am able to do this? Now think about this with me for just a second. All, all of these things that should pique your interest. Why, why would they have followed him this whole way, asking him to do this for them if they didn't believe he could do it? The question, it seems a little bit meaningless. Hasn't it already been answered? In the season of their blindness, Jesus wants them to profess their faith. And they do. Yes, Lord. Do you believe? Yes, Lord. Jesus repeatedly through this season of sickness, do you see, is testing the faith of these men. Will they follow Him? Will they persevere? Will they recognize Him for who He is? And will they profess their faith? Will they keep going? Will they keep professing? Are they coming to Him acknowledging who He is? And you, you know that. The seasons of your life when it feels like everything is against you, you recognize that, that not always does Jesus turn and immediately have pity. 
Not, on, not, not every time does he immediately turn to you and say, oh, my child, yes, I'll take it away. I'll take the load away from you. There are times where he tests your faith. Not, not, not from malice. Not because he has no regard for you. Not because he doesn't love you, but because he does love you. Let me give you just a couple of applications from this section. One, one I think you ought to recognize right away is that sight has little bearing on faith. Why does that matter? Well, early in the Middle Ages, a theology developed because of a lack of literacy amongst the people that what we need to do is we need to, we need to be able to portray the things that happened in the Bible in pictures. And so men began to use their artistic skills to paint pictures of saints and to carve images of Christ, even though they are an abomination to Him. And they justified this by saying, well, don't you understand that these people can't read? They need to see it. Well, if anything we take away from this passage is that men can believe on Christ to the good of their soul without, without sight at all. Why is that? Because faith doesn't come by seeing. Faith comes by hearing. God is pleased to grant faith to His people through the means of hearing. This is Romans 10, isn't it? We're not commanded as a church to go out and show them Christ in pictures. And sometimes we use this with our children, don't we? We say, well, it's a children's book, and sometimes don't pictures of Jesus in our children's books help them believe? Well, it had no bearing on blind men. Faith comes by hearing. If you want your children to believe, teach them. Show them. Read to them. The missionary call is to go out and proclaim the good news. Why? Because this is what God has decreed. How does faith come? What is the channel through which men believe? The proclamation of the gospel. Secondly, notice the strong faith. Did you notice that? These guys could not be deterred. They had every reason to say, look, if I had good friends, y'all heard about the paralytic, didn't you? I mean, they dug a hole in the roof for their friend. We can't see. Can't somebody bring Jesus to us? Didn't you hear about, didn't you hear about the centurion who said, Jesus, you don't even know to go to the house. Just say the word and, and my, 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 my son will be healed. They had every excuse. And yet what we see in the life of these men is that in the midst of their blindness, they had profound faith. Thomas Watson in his Body of Divinity writes this when he's thinking about God's wisdom. That sometimes God see is in His wisdom, which is infinite and eternal and unchangeable, sees fit to ordain Seasons of blindness. Seasons where, Lord, I don't know what the best decision is here. Help me. Watson says, God is wise. He sees it good 
sometimes that we should be without comfort. God sees humility to be better for us than joy. It is better to want comfort and be humble than to have it and be proud. When God shakes the tree of the body, He is gathering the fruits of righteousness. Do you see what Watson's saying there? When God ordains these seasons of your life, the good thing that He's doing is He is emptying you of all self-confidence. And you can do nothing but fall on your face and cry out for His help. And Watson is saying, isn't that where you want to be? When you think about Paul, 2 Corinthians, a messenger of Satan had been sent to buffet him. And he says, I prayed three times. Now you can only imagine how long those prayers must have been for the apostle. Three times he prayed. And he said what? Lord, take my thorn away. And God said what? No. Why? My grace is sufficient for you. And in those seasons of life where you find that your body is weak, oftentimes God will give you more grace. Your afflictions serve you in the same way. You call out for Christ to Christ for help, and He may not heal you, but one thing you can be assured of, He will give you grace. He will sustain you. Seasons of physical weakness, of affirmity, of affliction can often result in strong faith. That's the first thing. But the second thing is equally important. That weak faith often results from seasons of health. Here's the irony. Notice with me verses 30 to 31. Let's read it just again. Having passed the first three tests, Jesus gives them another one. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. Here's the scene. Their eyes open. What do they see immediately? The smiling face of Christ? No. They see the serious face of Christ. And Matthew tells us that he sternly warned them. The same word might be translated, he lectured them. He castigated them. He scolded them. He censured them in strong terms. In other words, he looked at these men and the first thing that they could see and hear with new sight was this. Do not tell anyone. And what Matthew wants us to understand is that there was no question here that he is serious. He's not saying, 
All right, guys, I would, I would appreciate it if, just take this into consideration. I, I'd be happy if you, uh, just keep this on the DL, just between the two of us. Now, here's another interesting facet of this, of this scene. There's a crowd, and as they go out now seeing, everybody that they encounter is going to say, what? What? Read, read this for me. What, you, you've seen those, uh, those uh, clips of men who put on, who've been colorblind and they put on the glasses for the first time and there's a, a sea of balloons in the yard and, and everybody's amazed and we're all shedding tears at, at how happy and joyous a moment is this and Jesus is taking that away. Don't go tell everybody. The same thing happens in Mark 1, uh, 40 to 45 and you remember the leper came to him. And Jesus says, I'm going to take your leprosy away. Happiest day of your life. You can go greet your family again and you can go worship at the temple, but don't tell anyone. And of course, good theologians wonder, well, why would Jesus say this to them? Why would Jesus tell them not to tell anyone? Why would he rob them of that joy? And and so there are all kinds of guesses. Well, we might say it's, we could say, okay, um, Jesus is the Christ, He's the king. He's the son of David. He's the Lord. He's Adonai. He is the I Am. He's the creator of the world. Um, It's not time for them to reveal that to everybody. Everybody everybody knows. I mean, you've, you've been following along in Matthew this far, haven't you? Did you expect anything else to happen except their healing? I mean, my atheist neighbor would read Matthew and say, I expected the healing. But Jesus issued a fierce warning. Why did he do it? One suggestion. Because he has the right. It is Jesus' divine right to command what he will. Go back with me just for a second to Genesis chapter 3. Or Genesis 2 and 3. Have you ever wondered why, why is it that Jesus commanded Adam not to eat of the fr- fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why? Was eating fruit sinful? No. There were all these other trees that they could eat from. But Jesus gave them one tree that they couldn't eat from. Why? It was a test of their faith. This is not do not murder. It's not do not steal. It's not do not lie. There's no obvious moral content to the command except obey. Just obey. Will you acknowledge my lordship in your life when I just tell you what to do and it doesn't make sense to you? Jesus commanded them not to tell because he had the right to do it. But this sets up the remarkable irony, and here it is, that when these men were blind, they pursued Christ with all of their might, and as soon as they could see, they abandoned him. Jesus vigorously commanded their obedience, and these men now seeing vigorously disobeyed his command. And you could say, you, you'll read commentators who will say, look, 
I mean, they just couldn't keep this news in. Could you? Family and friends are going to talk. Go back up with me to uh, verse 26. 25 and 26. But Jesus put the crowd outside. He went in. He took the little girl by the hand. And the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. So naturally, everybody's going to talk. But that's not Matthew's point, is it? Look at the end of the passage, verse 31. What happened? They went away. They spread the report. In other words, they disobeyed. While they were blind, they saw their need for Christ. When they could see, they betrayed Him. The fourth test of His faith, will you obey? Will you commit yourself to Me? Your followers, followers, you've recognized me, you've expressed your faith in me, will you obey? In some way, this scene just in a, is a nutshell. If you want to know the history of Israel, here it is. When you're small, weak, all you are is one man, Abraham. I called you out of the wilderness. I provide for you. You're nothing. You live in Egypt. You're slaves. I come to you. I bring you out. I make you strong. When you're weak, you call on me. When you're strong, you abandon me. Go back with me just for a second to Deuteronomy chapter 8. God didn't even uh, didn't, uh, just know that this would happen with His people, but He declared it to them beforehand. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 7. For the Lord your God... Now remember, just for context here, the, they are, they're on the border of Canaan. This is the second generation of people. All they, they had stepped over the bodies of their forefathers in the wilderness... And here they are, again, at the forefront of Canaan. They can, taste, they can taste the wine on their lips. Jesus, uh, God warns them, saying this in verse 7, For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, flowing out in the valleys and hills. They're just, you, the Bob Ross painting is forming on their minds. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates. You're going to have the best wines and jams and everything that you want. A land of olive trees and honey. A land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing. A land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper And you shall eat and be full. And you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land He has given you. Verse 11. Take care. Lest you forget the Lord your God. By not keeping His commandments and His rules and His statutes which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten 
and are full and have built good houses and live in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God. When He says to you, go and don't tell anybody, you say, I'm going to tell everybody. Many men plead with Christ when they are unwell and abandon Him when they are strong. And this is not saving faith. Don't you wonder if these men are in heaven? Don't you look at this example and say, I wonder if these guys were saved? Well, you're meant to wonder. Because that is the question, isn't it? Can a man follow Jesus? Can a man acknowledge Jesus? Can a man profess Jesus and disobey Him and be a child of God? If I pass three tests of faith and fail the fourth, is it saving faith? For us, you know, when life goes wrong, it's, oh, pray, pray, pray. But when life is going good, I'll pray tomorrow. So the question for us is, which season is better? Which season will I ask for? Am I going to pray for seasons of fullness or seasons of leanness? Do I want to feel physically well or do I want to be spiritually well? And we we have to avoid an ancient heresy Along the second and third centuries, uh, men began to think well of themselves, and they came up with this idea idea called Gnosticism. It just means to know. Well, one of the fundamental tenets of Gnosticism is I need to afflict my flesh so I can free my soul. My body is inherently evil, and I hate the flesh, but my soul is good. And so when I die, I am set free from the body of unrighteousness, and I am perfect. But that's not biblical doctrine. Biblical doctrine teaches us that the corruption goes all the way down. So if you go home and you say, well, I'm going to go hang out with some sick people because I want to be sick because then I'll be spiritually strong. I think the point of this passage is that who you are when you are well is who you really are. The ultimate display of love to Christ is a willingness to obey whatever He commands. We remember, it's an aspect, this is what Job's friends didn't seem to understand, or even Job himself in the beginning. There are times when God curses a man by giving him everything he wants. Romans chapter 1, isn't this the picture? He gave them over to the lust of their hearts. Here, have it. In in the middle 1700s, so you remember the whole history there, um, men from England uh, fleeing religious persecution came to the United States well, it wasn't the United States of America at that time, was it? The new colonies. 
and they began to settle here. And gradually more and more came. And they began to establish colonies and they had land holdings. And one of the things that we reflect on is that some of them were very religiously fervent because they, they had gotten, tried to get away from the oppression of the king. Well, we don't want the government telling us how we can worship or whom we can worship. And so, as time went on, uh, late 1700s, we declared independence from king, the king of England. George didn't like that too much, so he responded. And, and the colonies won the war. Wonderful. Now religion can flourish. I want to read you a quote from a man whose name is Robert Simple. And it's a few sentences, so bear with me. This was after the peace treaty was signed in 1783. He wrote this, the war, revolutionary war, though very propitious to the liberty of the Baptists, and we could include all denominations, there's really two denominations, Baptists and Presbyterians at that time, though very propitious to the liberty of the Baptists, had an opposite effect upon the life of religion among them. As if persecution was more favorable to vital piety than unrestrained liberty, they seem to have abated in their zeal upon being unshackled from their manacles. This may be ascribed to several causes. Perhaps many did not rightly estimate the true source of liberty nor ascribe its attainment to the proper arm, in consequence of which God sent them liberty, and with it, leanness of soul. This chill to their religious affections might have subsided with the war, or perhaps sooner, if there had not been subsequent occurrences which tended to keep them down. The opening of free trade by peace served as a powerful bait to entrap professors who were in any great degree inclined to the pursuit of wealth. And this has stuck with me. Nothing is more common than for the increase of wealth to produce a decrease of piety. Speculators seldom make warm Christians. With some few exceptions, the declension was general throughout the state. The love of many waxed cold. Some of the watchmen fell. Others stumbled. And many slumbered at their posts. You see what he's saying? With the liberty that was accomplished through the Revolutionary War came a religious ice age. Oh, while we were persecuted, we loved the Lord. Man, we gathered. And you see this throughout time. I I encourage you to go back and read uh, uh, some of the reflections of uh, Richard Wormbrand who founded Voice of the Martyrs. One thing that you'll find in Romania uh, under the... the, 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 uh, 
occupation of the Nazis, everybody who went to church wanted to be there because your life was on the line to attend. Now, Robert Simple, when he wrote this, was 14 years old. And yet he was a man in the faith. And I would suggest to you that if the Lord wanted to get the attention of his people, one thing that he would take away from them was an, is an abundance of wealth. If the Lord wants to get, us, get our attention, he will strip us of health and well-being. He will take our riches away from us. And he will remind us that we have one maker. And he doesn't sit on, on our shelves in front of us. He will take away from us idolatry and every other thing that we will trust in. He will show us the corruption of politicians. And he will remind us that there is only one righteous. There's only one upon whom we can place our trust. And it isn't horses. It isn't chariots. It isn't armies. It isn't an economy. It isn't a president. It is Yahweh. What season are you in today? If you are in a season of affliction and turmoil... Use that affliction to remember your weakness and your need of Christ. If you are in a season of ease, examine yourself. Are you still acknowledging your need for Christ? Has something replaced your zeal for holiness and obedience to Him? Have you found contentment apart from Him? My friend, you are in a dangerous place. As you reflect upon our passage this morning, you must be careful to remember the danger that the season of well-being represents to your soul. God gives men what they want, oftentimes to show them their belief is empty. In all seasons of life, our calling is to strive for Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these are such hard words for us to think about these two men. These two men, who with all their heart and soul, while they were blind, pursued after Christ, and as soon as He gave them what they want, they abandoned Him. And then, Lord, we think about how often this has happened in the past. Israel, you gave them Canaan. They had everything they could possibly want. And they built golden calves with which to worship. And then we think about the lives of men upon whom you've sent afflictions. We think of Moses and Elijah and David and Solomon, Paul, the Lord Himself. And these seasons of hardship emptying themselves of all their self-confidence enabled them to see Christ with the clearest vision. Father, we want vision. We don't want to ask for times of hardship, but we know, we know that when we are full, Lord, the temptation is so strong to become self-righteous, self-trusting, to think that we have everything that we need without Jesus.
without piety. We ask that you would help us to repent and turn to you for the forgiveness of sins. We pray in the name of Christ, your beloved. Amen.